Hello, ECC. How are you? It is good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 18? Luke chapter 18, and we will be in verse 1 to 14. And as you're turning there, I wonder, have you ever trusted something that just completely failed you? Something small, maybe. You decided to trust a chair and sit on it, and you found out that it was not quite as sturdy as you'd have hoped it would be in a public setting. Or maybe you trusted a piece of machinery. Um, Recently, I was being told uh, of a story of someone who bought a phone that said, Apple, original. Then when you switch it on, it says, Samsung. And you're like, huh. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not going to that shop again. In many ways and for many reasons, there are many things that can shake our trust or build our trust. That's just the nature of trust. Things either build it or deplete it. In the text of scripture we are about to read today, what I'm hoping you are left with and what I am left with is that we can completely trust God and pray to him without losing heart. That's what I'm I'm hoping we are left with. In fact, specifically, that we can trust God between now and when he returns or calls us home and continually pray to him who is completely trustworthy without losing heart. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 18, from verse 1, we'll read to 14. I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? Who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. So quick recap. Jesus has been telling these stories, these parables. And a parable is a story with a spiritual truth that he's communicating to the people that are hearing him. And a couple of weeks ago, we went to the story of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, then the lost son. And a couple of weeks after that, rather, we, we did the parable of the dishonest manager or the unjust manager. Now he comes to this story of an unjust judge and then later a Pharisee and a tax collector. And what I'm hoping we see in both these stories is that though prayer is in both of the stories, really the central issue is trust. Who is it that we can trust? And I think God's point through these stories is that we can trust him fully and pray to him without losing heart. Now, these two stories have two different audiences. So let's, let's start with the first one. Luke 18 from verse 1. And he told them a parable. Who is the them? That he's telling, telling this parable to. So one chapter earlier, in chapter 17, from verse 20 all the way to the beginning of chapter 18, he's been telling the people around him how God is going to come, how the kingdom, the rule and reign of God fully, territorially, eternally, how that's going to happen. And who is he telling this story? Luke 17 from verse 20, I'll read it for you. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said, verse 22, to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. He's talking to his disciples. That's the audience in this first parable. He's telling them, the disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's talking to his disciples, pray and not lose heart. And then he starts this story. And in this story, listen out for these two characters, the judge, obviously, and the widow, particularly the judge. Because of these two characters, he's the main character. He's the guy Jesus wants us to really pay attention to. And right from the starting, he sets us up to know the character of this judge. Look at verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That phrase, respected man, means he had no shame. So he doesn't fear God, doesn't honor God, doesn't love God, doesn't obey God. And he has no shame before men in a culture that was honor-shame. At the very least, this Jewish judge was a bad Jew. Like the baseline for a Jew is fear God, 
and respect people. That's like baseline. You're not talking like you're an amazing Jew. You're just like the baseline Jew. Jews used to wake up, according to Deuteronomy 6, and say this thing called the Shema. In other words, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Basic thing is, we are the guys who love the Lord. This guy, meh. And he has no shame before people. He doesn't care what they think. That's what it literally means. Now, you put those two characteristics in a judge, (laughs) that's the perfect recipe for impunity. That's the perfect recipe for someone who doesn't care what he does to you or what effect it will have. Because there's nothing above him that he should be afraid of. And all your complaining means nothing to him anyway. Didn't fear God. Didn't respect man. One of the ways we know that he didn't fear God and that he was a bad judge is verse 2 says, verse 3, I beg your pardon, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming. She kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, here's this widow coming to ask for justice, but she has to keep coming, which means he's not doing anything about it. He has no interest in doing anything about it. The law that Israel used to use was God's law. And God was abundantly clear on how widows were to be cared for. Abundantly clear on what would happen if justice for the widow was prevented or perverted. Here's Exodus chapter 22. Here's what it says in verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you. With the sword, your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. The judge knew this verse. But you see, when you don't fear God, that verse means nothing. It's not that he doesn't know the law. He doesn't care. uh, Here's another one, Deuteronomy, in chapter 27. Verse 19, cursed is anyone who prevents the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. He knows a curse will come his way if he prevents or perverts justice for this widow. But again, when you don't fear God, his wrath, his curse means nothing to you. Last one, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For Yahweh, the Lord your God, is God among gods, Lord of, the law, Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Keep a mental handle on that. The judge of the universe takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing at the proper time. He knows these laws. He just doesn't care about the laws because he neither fears God nor cares about man. Just think about the word widow. I don't care what language you speak, but just think about that word in your own language. Doesn't it elicit an emotion? Even in English. No one hears the word widow and they're like, ah, okay, it's the same as saying student. No. It makes you feel something. This guy feels nothing. There's literally a widow. You have no sympathy for her. She's been chasing you around all day. The language makes it look like he wakes up, she's at his door. He walks the dog, he's walking the, she's walking the dog with him. Like everywhere he goes, this widow has to follow you because you are her only hope. And in this culture... The way the law courts worked is you could only go into the law courts or have your case heard in the law courts through a man. Now, she's a widow, so she has no husband. She's a widow. It seems like her father is not there to represent her, so there's no man to represent her either. 
She's a widow. If she has a son, that son is clearly not an adult or old enough to help get to the judge. So what's her only option? Bang down the judge's door night and day. She kept coming. This is a bad judge. The widow says, give me justice against my adversary. Clearly, she has an adversary who is more powerful than her, has more means than her, is more moneyed than her, something. But it seems like she has a legitimate case because there's no pushback against the case. And it seems like he knows that she has a legitimate case. Now, the text doesn't say this, but common practice at that time and common practice in many faulty courtrooms today in many countries is what the judge would do is he'd have a case. Here's the plaintiff or the complainant, the widow, and the defendant or whatever you call it, um, the, the adversary. What he would do is when the case is brought before him and the widow says, give me justice against my adversary, he's like, okay, great, give me some money and I'll give you justice. And then he goes to this other side and says, hey, I don't want to have to pay these things. Like, yeah, you just pay me and I'll give you justice. Literally, he'd write two decisions and then start a bidding war. 1,000, we're here 1,000, 2,000, we're here 2,000, ah, 3,000. And fleece as much money as he can from both of them. Are we told that's what he's doing? No. But a man who doesn't fear God and has no sympathy for people, I wouldn't put it past him. Initially, it says he refused so he's preventing justice, the very thing the law says you shouldn't do. But afterward, he said to himself, now we've seen that phrase somewhere else in these parables, right? The prodigal son came to himself. The dishonest manager said to himself. That phrase means they had a resolve to act, a resolve to do something. Now we see that phrase and we're thinking, ah, maybe he changed his character. He realized, oh, this is a poor widow. No. He said to himself, I don't care about God, I don't care about people, she's just bugging me. How can I get rid of her? Because she's literally beating me down. She's annoying me. So he gives her justice, not because he's a good judge, just because he's trying to get rid of her. Listen to Jesus' Jesus's own interpretation of this parable. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous widow, rather the unrighteous, I beg your pardon, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Then verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect? What he's doing here is not drawing a parallel. There's this judge and God. Because there's an unrighteous judge and he brings God into the picture. And who is God? The righteous judge. He's saying the righteous judge is the exact polar opposite of the unrighteous judge. <laughs> That's the whole point of the story. In fact, he's saying precisely because that unrighteous judge gives justice out of being bothered, will not God, the righteous judge, give justice for all the right reasons? The unrighteous judge, basically it's like he's saying, surely, if an unrighteous judge can give justice, wouldn't a righteous judge do it? If you think about these two people, he's not saying if you disturb God and pester God as much as the widow pestered God, ah, then God will realize. Then God will say, okay, let me attend to your plea. Right? Because sometimes we learn this story that way. You know, you bang down the doors of heaven, be like the widow, keep telling God, I need this, I need this, I need this. Then he will answer, friend, you realize that makes God look like the unrighteous judge. It makes God look like you're just pestering him. He really doesn't want to help you out, but you know, you've been bothering me for like three months now. Okay, here's what you want. 
Jesus is saying that's not the character of the righteous judge. He's the exact opposite. The unrighteous judge, for him, this was a random widow. For the righteous judge, these are his chosen, his elect. And who are these chosen? Who are these elect? All of those who have heard God's call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Who are the chosen? Who are the elect? Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, turned away from their sin and trusted in this very judge. For the righteous judge, his elect are called his beloved. For the unrighteous judge is a random widow. For the unrighteous judge, he has no relationship with the widow. For the righteous judge, this is his bride. For the unrighteous judge, she's a bother. For the righteous judge, scripture says, they can cry out to him day and night because he's available to them day and night. For the unrighteous judge, he's available when he's available. For the righteous judge, he's more available for them than they even have the time for. The unrighteous judge denies and delays justice. Scripture says that the righteous judge, judge is swift, quick with justice. It is swift, it is satisfactory, it is spectacular. For the unrighteous judge, all he has is derived authority. Romans 13, all authority comes from God. For the righteous judge, he is the authority. And that's why Jesus says, will he delay long over them? Will he not give them justice? Will he not give it to them speedily? And then he asks the question, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, that phrase, son of man, what's, what's that about? What's this son of man business? Because it's been there in the previous chapter, now it's here again. The idea is all the way back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision of God, essentially, and the son of man is the person to whom, this is chapter 7, verse 13, all authority, all dominion, all glory is given to him, all nations, tongues, tribes come to him. The son of man is the judge and ruler of the universe. And Jesus is saying, guys, I am that son of man. I am the righteous ruler of the universe. I am king and God. And all nations will eventually come to me. I will execute justice when I return. And his question is, will I find my faithful still trusting me and praying to me without losing heart between now and when I return? See, for Jesus, the question is not whether God will respond to prayer, but whether there will be faithful people who have persisted in prayer and not lost hope until the Son of Man comes. Right there we have to pause. Because there's a little bit of a spanner or a monkey wrench thrown into the works, right? If we are being honest, when Jesus says, I will give them justice, we are like, amen. When he says, I will give them justice speedily, we are like, well, let's talk about that. Right? Because you and I don't experience justice as speedily as we would like. We come to God praying for deliverance from our adversaries. Our biggest adversary is being the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our experience is not that we receive it five minutes after we prayed. Our experience is when we come to God and struggle with our sin and say, God, crush this thing, we kind of still continue struggling with it. When we hear Satan tempt us to despair and we are like, God, thwart his works, we kind of keep hearing him whisper in our ear lies and his lies become more believable with every day. Our experience is that when we go to the world, we are tempted to enter the world 
as co-agents with the world instead of changing the world by being lights, shining lights for who Jesus is, right? So what does it mean when Jesus says he will execute justice for them speedily, quickly? Aren't they crying out day and night precisely because they're not feeling this justice come speedily? It's like the picture in Revelation painted. They are always asking, how long, O Lord, are we going to struggle with these adversaries? Because they don't feel like they're going away. Uh, this, this is not speedy, Lord. Now, you guys are looking at me with spiritual faces like, no, we never think that. We just trust the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, for the rest of us normal Christians, <laughs> we struggle because it feels delayed. And justice delayed tends to feel like justice denied. So that's where we take a step back and view our lives in light of a bigger timeline called eternity. Then we will see that it's speedy. When I was in primary school, they taught me that a line is a series of dots, right? Put enough dots together, they become a line. The dot itself doesn't know it's part of a line, right? The dot itself doesn't know it's part of a work of art. Recently, my baby sister and her boyfriend went to see an art gallery. And they're talking about these beautiful paintings, George Washington, the Bonnet. And it's like they just fell in love with art. They even fell in love with each other. That's the effect of these lines. But they're just lines, a series of dots. The dots don't know that they're part of a masterpiece. Your life and my life is a little bit like that. A little dot in an amazing masterpiece, an eternal masterpiece called God's salvation. A little dot that started in eternity and is going to eternity of how God has been redeeming his people and using them to display his glory and beautifying them as his masterpiece. As the dot, it doesn't always feel like this is a masterpiece because we don't see the whole picture. We don't see that that seeming delay in these 60, 70, 80, 90, if God gives you a lot of life, years, is actually a vapor. It's very short when compared with eternity. But it is not an insignificant dot. It is a dot marked by Almighty God. And so you're there. And you're thinking, I was fired from my job because I was the guy who, as a Christian, refused to cook the books and pad the books and impress my bosses by joining the big boys club and lying about our revenue. So they got together and fired me. I was fired for being a Christian, essentially. And they got raises. I'm out here struggling to pay rent. Where's my justice? It's been five years. They're doing great. Child of God, his response is, I am the righteous judge. I will execute justice. Whether in this life or the next, he guarantees it. So you're the person who married the love of your life only for them to be a philandering mess. And he or she cheated on you constantly, broke your heart. You gave the best years of your life to this. And then they moved out with their new love interest. And you're walking around with a broken heart, and they seem like they're doing just fine. 
Where's your justice? Hear your God say, will not God execute justice? Will he not vindicate you? Whether in this life or the next, he will execute that justice. You're the person who maybe your, your struggle with sin is the thing that you're dying over. Sin is a real adversary. And you've been struggling with the same besetting sin for five months, five years, ten years. And you're crying out to God like, God, will you not vindicate me? Will you not deliver me from this? And Satan is happy to collude with your sin. And that's why it's called the tempter and the accuser, right? He tempts you to sin, just do it. And then when you sin, he's like, ah, you're even a Christian. You should just walk away from the faith. He accuses you. And you're looking at God like, do you not see? <laughs> God, do you not care that I'm struggling here? Will you not thwart Satan? Hear the righteous judge say, oh, I will execute justice over Satan. You will see Satan finally, fully, fatally trampled under your foot. You will have sin eradicated from not only within you, but around you. It's coming. So when he asks the question, well, will the Son of Man, when he comes, find faith on the earth? Will he find people holding on, praying, God deliver us? How long, O oh Lord? God, we trust you. It's a rhetoric question because the answer is, of course he will. Why? Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You, child of God, are his project, and God has never fumbled a project. You, child of God, are not random. God has never done a random thing in his life. And he will find you praying, because he's the one who has given you his own spirit to enable you to pray. He's the one who even now is praying for you and enabling you, child of God, to pray. So, Pray and do not lose heart. Pray. You are his beloved. He will hear. Pray. He's the one who says he will bring you safely home. Pray. He's the one who says you will come home in Jude 23 and 24 and 25 without stumbling and with great joy before him. He is able to do it. We pray and we don't lose heart because we trust him. Our little dot lives have been trusted to an omnipotent God who is making an eternal masterpiece. So the first parable that was targeted at his disciples, at his elect, at his chosen, he's trying to push to them the idea that you can trust me and pray to me because your justice will come. In the second parable, it's not so much about them receiving justice, but about God being the justifier. It's not so much about pray that God will do right by you, but it's more, here is how you can be right with God. So, so here it is in chapter 18, from verse 19. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Now, who's that? Yeah, yeah okay, let's try it. One person. Who are those who trusted in themselves? There we go, the Pharisees. So his audience has changed. Now, he's not talking to his elect, his chosen anymore. He's talking to those who are outside, though they don't know they're outside. He's talking to the ones who trust in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. And right there, he's doing the same thing with this that he did with the other parable. He's giving you a hint. Same way he gave you a hint on the judge's character, now he's giving you a hint on what people who trust in themselves are like. They trust in themselves that they are righteous and they treat others with contempt. Those who tend to trust themselves and think they are righteous tend to treat others with contempt, like they are beneath them. And once again, he has two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. What he's trying to show is those who trust in themselves have their own gauge of what it means to be righteous. That's just the big point there. And this time, that is his main character. So he says two men go up to pray. Don't miss that major point. Both of them, mere mortals, went to the temple to talk to God. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Now the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were upright people. They taught the Bible. They preached the Bible. They were rich-ish. The tax collector, like we said a couple of weeks ago, the only people Jews hated more than the Romans were tax, tax collectors. They would squeeze their very own people to support the empire called Rome. They were immoral, they were corrupt, they were lawbreakers, they were traitors. In both term and deed, they were just not nice people. So here is the Pharisee who goes up. Listen to the language Jesus uses to describe him. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. In other words, to talk to God. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, separating himself from the ordinary, common, inferior ones. Standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, when you, when you read that word, prayed this way, or prayed thus, it's actually directly translated, says, prayed to himself. So two men went up to pray. One of them decided to pray to himself. Not surprisingly, the content of his own prayer is largely himself. You see, the Pharisee is convinced that he's so amazing and better than the other people around him that even when he comes to God, he makes himself the topic of discussion. Look at his prayer. He starts out by saying, I thank God. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, great, that's a good way to start. To start, rather, God, I thank you. That's a good way to start. Usually when you thank someone, you say, hey, thank you for giving me water. Thank you for giving me a ride. Thank you for what you have done for me, right? Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. God, I thank you basically that I'm so amazing. In fact, I'm so amazing that God, if you knew what's good for you, you would be amazed by me. God, let me show you how amazing I am. And then he proceeds to go give God his resume. That's essentially what he does. He says, God, here's my resume. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. And right there, you can already see he has categorized sin. He has unrespectable sins. His pride is a respectable sin. These are unrespectable sins. Extortioners, unjust adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Now that was a big deal because generally speaking, the Jews would only fast once a year during the Day of Atonement. But this guy, twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Again, that's a big deal because Jews, in a, in a culture and in a time when people didn't have like paper money or bank accounts where they could just give a 10% of everything, that means of everything you have, 10% of your dill, 10% of your cumin, 10% of your wheat, 10% of your goats, 10% of your... It's an arduous task. And they did this. 
better than anyone else. The point of the Pharisees is they invented new laws so that they could obey them. The whole point of doing that was to put God in their debt. What they were essentially trying to do with God is say, God, look how much better I am. Look how much better we are. And because we are better than everyone else, you owe us heaven. You ought to accept us. We are at the top of the curve, so to speak. We are the 5% right here at the top, the guys who get 90% in the math exam, and everyone else following us has like 20%. You're in our debt, God. Whatever small sins we may perform, those are respectable sins. We don't form these un horrible, horrific things. Adultery, unjust, extortioning. And probably the most messed up part of his prayer is this. I thank you that I'm not like these other people and don't do these things, or even like this tax collector. The guy is right there. He uses his prayer to shame another mere mortal like himself. Ever been in one of those prayer meetings? Father, we thank you for the Bible study today. Please remind Amwangi not to leave his socks inside our carpet and stop stepping on the cookies inside our carpet. Lord, uh, we thank you for Sister Grace. Uh, we just pray that she doesn't leave her plates on the table. Um, right? Based on those smiles, you've all been to those prayer meetings. Or maybe worse yet, you were the one praying in said prayer meetings. That's what this guy is doing. He's using the prayer to shame the person next to him. And he's in a place of prominence. And what does the tax collector do? Verse 13. He stands far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. That's a big deal because Jews generally used to pray looking to heaven with their arms up toward heaven. Wouldn't lift his eyes, but instead of his arms being up, he's beating his breast and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. A picture of his humility before God. The first thing you have to realize about this guy, he only compares himself to God. The Pharisee compared himself to everyone else. The tax collector recognizes in God's temple, when you're speaking to a three times holy God, the only person you need to be concerned about is that God you're speaking to. In fact, in the original language, it doesn't say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It says, God be merciful to, to me, the sinner. It's almost as though he was the only person in the room and he knew the only thing I've brought to this temple is my sin. Fundamental difference between these two guys. They both have dead bodies, but the Pharisee is busy spraying cologne over the dead body thinking that God doesn't smell it. Dead bodies of their sin. Tax collector walks up and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. When he says, be merciful, that word for merciful only appears one other time in the New Testament, in Hebrews 2.17. It talks about how Jesus atoned for sacrifice. In fact, directly translated, if you will, it says, God be my mercy seat. Don't miss what the tax collector is saying. He's essentially saying, God, save me. The only thing I've come to your temple with is my sin. So God, save me. Be my mercy seat. Atone for my sin. I have nothing to trust in except you. 
And if you would vanquish me with your wrath, that's exactly what I should expect. But be my mercy seat. Be my atoning sacrifice. And that is scandalous to this culture. Because the only people who could pray that way were the high priests. Right there, Jesus is telling them, this guy is more like the high priest than the Pharisee. God, be my mercy seat. Two people went to the temple to spoke to God. Only one of them did. Two people went to the temple to be heard by God. Only one of them was heard. Two people went to the temple to be accepted by God. Only one of them was accepted. And he is the one who said, be my mercy seat. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Beloved Pharisee who doesn't know Jesus in this congregation. Beloved Pharisee, who you're seated here right now as part of what you do to fulfill righteousness. You're seated here right now because you think by coming to church, by giving, by reading your Bible, by praying, by obeying God's word, then you will be acceptable to God. And everyone around you is so impressed by your piety, they encourage it. But you and I know, if you were to stand before a three times holy God with all of your resume as a Pharisee, you would be in trouble. You know who the best example of that is? Paul, who was a Pharisee, then became a tax collector. Listen to Paul, who used to bring his curriculum vitae, if you will, who used to bring his resume to God as the basis upon which he would be accepted. Because you recognize the Pharisees should have known. God doesn't accept people or count them right based on what they did. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. The basis of acceptance was always the same. Faith in God. So here's Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He gives his resume, if you will. In fact, he would have, if he was having a conversation with his friend here, the Pharisee, he would have told him, oh, you think you have reason to boast. I myself have reason for confidence or trust in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin, the nobler tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. For the sake of Christ. Later he says, I count it all, that entire lineage, that entire legalism, I count it all rubbish. In the original language, it's a much stronger word. I count all of that dung. It means nothing. The only thing that matters here, him, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He recognized I don't have a righteousness of my own. I need to look away from myself and cry out like this tax collector, oh God, be merciful to me. I've only brought my sin. So unless you're merciful, I die. But praise God, he is merciful. Praise God that he's not just just, but he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to justify, accept those who would turn away from their sin and trust in him. He bore the wrath that the tax collector was meant to have. Rose three days later and says that if anyone would humble themselves and recognize they're a sinner, he would exhort them all the way to the status of priest, king, son, servant of God.
So a couple of questions for you and I. Believer, in your pride and in my pride, because that's the problem with our pride. Our pride is like a shadow. It follows us everywhere. In fact, our pride is so messed up, we don't recognize it. We are those guys who talk about ourselves like, oh yeah, I'm going to write my first book, Humility and How I Attained It. <laughs> that's how proud we are. We don't even recognize it. In your pride and in my pride, it is the easiest thing to compare ourselves to others, because pride is the sin of comparison. Well, at least I, you know, I don't struggle with that sin like him. That's such a disrespectable sin, because which respectable sins are these before God? Which ones? I am a sinner through and through. And church, ECC, this is part of why we sing songs like, Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. So that when we sing, when we read, whatever we hear humbles us. Lest we think we have a righteousness of our own. Believer, a friend, a friend of mine actually helped me this week. He said, if you're struggling with that kind of pride, one of the best prayers you can pray that God 100% of the time will answer is this. God, show me how sinful I am. He will answer. And the effect is, it will humble us. Because then the gauge is not, what did he do? What did she do? The gauge is, look what God has done for me. Look how he's still putting up with me. Look how he refuses to give up on me. Oh, I pray, believer, that would be your prayer. This changes how we do evangelism. You don't think of other people like we are so much better than them. By definition, the word saved means you didn't contribute. <laughs> A drowning man doesn't get out of the water and say, well, you know, I was drowning with gusto. I was... No, you are drowning. You are saved. And if there are others drowning, we extend the same salvation that we found. So when we go out to the most debased, debauched, whatever you want to call them, people in the world, that was us. And there's a God who is extending the call to them saying, come home. Come home. So as we conclude, four questions. Question number one. Will you trust God? Regardless of which season you're in, and keep praying to him. Yes, I know it's hard. Trusting God is hard. <laughs> Firstly, because we are sinners. We are surrounded by sin. The events of our lives don't always match up neatly with what we would like. And it's just it's hard. But will we trust that when he said something, he's the unlying God. He cannot lie. He does not lie. So I'll trust him. Even when I don't fully see what he's doing. And I'll just keep praying and not lose heart over the sin I'm struggling with, over the depression I'm struggling with, over the, I'll just trust him. Second question. Will we pray to God and not lose heart? It's very easy to pray horizontally and not vertically. But will we pray to him and not lose heart, knowing that he himself is empowering us to do the very thing that we want to do? Third question, will we constantly ask God to show us our sin and humble us as individual believers and as a church? Because you recognize an entire church can be the Pharisee, right? Oh, we as a church, we are not like that church over there. We are so much better than that church over there. 
But our gauge is not that church over there. <laughs> our gauge is the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. It is him we want to please. And last question. Will we take this trustworthy God to those who don't know him, that they too may trust him and pray to him, knowing that he will execute justice for them and justify them as he has done for us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, Lord, that you would do an eternal work in my heart and in our hearts that would ripple through all eternity. Oh, God, be merciful to us. We are sinners through and through. But in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have made us your beloved, your chosen, and you are working in us, you are working for us, you are working through us, you are working despite of us to glorify yourself and give us our deepest joys. We pray you may do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.